the story has been repeated over and over again. It's a story of uh, the woman who marries hoping for love and security, but then she finds too soon that she's being ignored or ridiculed, that, that she's being called names or restrained or forced into doing things or controlled. And, and she finds herself stuck in a marriage that's harmful for her and harmful for her children. Experts suggest that one in three women in an intimate relationship will experience intimate partner abuse or violence. The number is smaller for men, but something like one in seven uh, men in, in relationships are going to experience some kind of manipulation, control, and physical harm. Now, what's intended to be this beautiful institution of intimacy and security and love ends up being a place where your very soul seems to be subjugated to someone else's whims. I'd hope that, that we're not experiencing that here in the church, but the statistics are that, especially in a church, in a religion that is um, conservative, um, more towards the fundamental uh, thinking, there's going to be a lot more abuse in that environment. And I think that's something that we should pay attention to, we should take note of, the reality is whether it's in the home or work or whether you're, you're, the abuse is, is from a boss um, with um, maybe keeping you from job opportunities because of uh, personal uh, ideology or religion or color, race, whatever, or maybe there's some other um, issue. We all can experience abuse because we all live in a sinful world. And sin, by its very nature, is abusive to, to either us, our, ourselves, or to somebody else or to God. That's what abuse, or what sin is. It's abusive. And since most of us will experience abuse at some level, the question that we need to ask is, what should a Christian do? How should a Christian deal with abuse? Back in June, I shared from 1 Peter 1 and 2, and it was my philosophy of ministry. I, I gave this concept of leaning into God's grace, and that leaning in means that we are, according to 1 Peter 1, um, he talks about brotherly love. We trust God enough to love our brothers and our sisters, but, it, but also that we're being built together like a family, um, but also like a spiritual building, and God is placing you in a specific spot in this in this church family, and that your spot is important. It's needed, right? That's First Peter 1 and 2, and that was a fun introduction. And I thought, let's just jump into to First Peter 2 and 3 and keep going in a series on First Peter. And then I started looking at it and realized that First Peter 2 is about submission and abuse. And First Peter 3 begins with adornment and, uh, and, and also uh, discussions of family stuff. So I, I feel like uh, maybe this isn't the best first sermon, um, please don't judge me on, on that. We're just going to look at the Bible and find out what the Bible says. And it's an important question. What should a Christian do about abuse? How do we deal with it? And some people would like to take First Peter and suggest that submission is blind and that we simply are, you know, under the authorities that God has given us, we just, we just need to do what they say, just obey, blind obedience. And I think that that's a, that's a false interpretation, and we really need to understand what is Peter talking about here. And, and especially, the, this is an important topic and, and valuable because today is the North American Divisions, the General Conference actually, uh, End It Now Emphasis Day. Have you heard of End It Now? Hashtag End It Now? A couple of you. 
So what I want you to do is take out the pen that's nearby you and write this down. Enditnownorthamerica.org. Enditnownorthamerica.org. I'll give you a minute. Enditnownorthamerica.org. Now this is, uh, it's important because what the North American Division and the General Conference are doing is they're saying, let's pay attention to an issue that is among us and that's out in the world. And it's not just the Me Too movement and the, the stuff like that that's going on. This, this started a little before that. Um, but it's just a recognition that we haven't paid attention to issues of intimate violence and, and, and marital abuse and family abuse. We haven't paid attention like we need to. And one of the things that the gospel is about is justice. Uh, and we need to face injustice in all its forms, even inside our homes. And whether it's uh, sexual abuse, physical violence, uh, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, um, spiritual abuse, abuse in all its forms is a problem. And so End It Now is an opportunity for us to investigate that. And so we're going to do that today in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3 and, and figure out what does Peter tell us to do in response to abuse. And just for a little context, 1 Peter is uh, written by the Apostle Peter, and he, he says he's in Babylon, and Babylon is probably the spiritual Babylon. We don't know exactly. It could have been the Egyptian Babylon, because there's one there, and there's an Iraqi Babylon. It, it could have been that. But more than likely, Peter is writing from his pastorate in Rome, and so this would be spiritual Babylon. He's writing to the scattered Christians in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, a place that we would know today as Turkey. So that's the context. Now, the people he's writing to could be Jewish converts to Christianity that have been spread out from, from Jerusalem because of persecution from the Jews. That's uh, one of the possibilities. The other possibility is that they could be Gentile Christians who are converts to Christianity. But either way, whether they're Jewish converts to Christianity or Gentile converts to Christianity, they are feeling like aliens and strangers in the place that they're living in. You ever gone somewhere? and kind of felt like you were out of place? I can't imagine what the, the people that are coming to America as refugees um, are, are feeling right now in the climate that we're dealing with. We're struggling with the immigration issues. Like, what, what do they feel like as aliens and strangers in this land? Um, there's some, some challenges that come with that. And so when we look at, at the correspondence between government officials and um, from the writings of Christian apologists during that, the time uh, that Peter is writing, we, we find that the, the Roman Empire was very pagan, and the way that they looked at Christians was, well, they, they looked at us as kind of odd. They thought that, that the Christians were atheists. Now, why would, they, why would the Christian be an atheist? I was told to turn off my mic. So why would a Christian be called an atheist? Well, because they'd rejected all the pagan gods, and, and they didn't have an idol to worship, and so they don't worship any god. They're atheists. Uh, okay, so they're atheists. Uh, they also thought that they were immoral. Now, why would they think that they were immoral? Well, they called each other brother and sister, because we're a church family, right? So brother, so-and-so, sister, so-and-so. And, and then the, the pagans heard them calling each other brother and sister. And then they talked about getting together for their agape feasts. And they, they thought, hmm, a love feast 
Hmm. And so what they concluded was that they were having incestuous orgies. That was exciting. Um, not true, but, but uh, that was the gossip that was going around. Some people thought that they were cannibals because they talked about consuming the body and the blood of this, well, they talked about the Christmas story, Jesus coming as a baby, and so it's the body and blood of this Jesus, and he's a baby, right? So there are very strange rumors going around about Christians, and, and you can imagine that as a result of this, they were, there was quite a bit of discrimination uh, against these people that were so strange and so weird, right? We're not going to let them in our business. And so they lost their jobs. You become a Christian and you lose your post in, in the civil government. Um, you become a Christian and you get oppressed from your master or from your husband. And so this is the context of what First Peter 2 and 3 um, is speaking into. Peter's talking to these people that are experiencing this kind of persecution, now, as we dive into these chapters, and we're going to start in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, but as we dive in, Peter's going to talk about authority quite a bit, and we'll call them um, powers, you might say. And there's three categories of powers that he brings up in, in the book of 1 Peter. The first is the superordinate powers. These are powers outside of this world. What kind of powers are outside of this world that you know of? God, absolutely. He's the all authority kind of power. Every other power answers to God. What other uh, powers are there? There's uh, the evil angels. Um, there's also God's righteous angels. Um, so we have, uh, we have several different groups of powers that Peter talks about. And then we have this, that, so those are superordinate, out of this world. Then we have ordinate powers. That's inside this world. Uh, these are authorities that God is, has put into place to act on his behalf, um, to stem the tide of, of wickedness and to um, praise and encourage righteousness. That's what Peter discusses uh, here. And, and these powers include things like kings and governors, masters, husbands, and elders. And then there's subordinate powers. These are people who are subject to some kind of authority. And he includes uh, servants and wives and young people in this mix as he's talking about um, these authorities. Now, in the, in the context of 1 Peter, the basis of their submission is um, for the Lord's sake. So that's kind of the context. You have superordinate, ordinate, and subordinate powers in the, the book of 1 Peter. So let's go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the big idea of this entire passage. And even though it, in, in King James and New King James, it looks like it's the second half of a sentence, it's really a complete thought. Uh, and, and most versions uh, put that as a, its own sentence. And, and it's the beginning of Paul, I mean, sorry, Peter talking about this issue of what do we do with abuse. And then we're going to find in chapter 3, verse 12, he finishes this idea and he says, finally. So he's got a chunk here and, and we're going to try to go through it uh, thoroughly, but, but quickly, if you don't mind. Now, verse 12, it's the big idea. And what's the big idea here? What is he, what is he trying to say in this whole section um, in the last half of, of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3? According to verse 12, what's he trying to say? 
live above reproach so that there's a there's a an important connection what's the purpose of living above reproach it's it's so that not just that we glorify god but it's so that the the wicked the pagans that observe us will glorify god at some point jesus he said it this way in matthew 5:16 let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven and peter is taking this idea from peter I mean, sorry, Peter is taking the idea from Jesus, and he's applying it to this situation. We're dealing, we're about to talk about an abusive situation, but, but here's the point. Live in a way that they'll end up glorifying God. They say that they speak evil things about you. Um, Peter says, speak against you as evildoers. So they're speaking evil about you, but live in such a way that they won't be able to reproach you for your good works. Um, they speak, and, and when we look at today's environment, do people speak evil of Christians? I, I like NPR. My dad brought me up on national public radio. For all of you who are opposed to the liberality of national public radio, I'm, I'm sorry that that's my upbringing. I can't help it. But I do enjoy some of the, the, the news shows and things on there. And, and to be honest, I, I have to close my ears for a, a good number of it because they talk about some stuff that I just don't agree with. Uh, that's not the case here in North Idaho, because there is no such thing as national public radio here. Um, <laughs> different talk radio. I, I, so I, I have to get used to a different culture. Um, but that's okay. When I listen to secular humanists talk about Christians, we are spoken evil of. They speak evil of, against us because we're, we indoctrinate, quote-unquote, our children against evolutionary science. They speak evil against us because we hold standards of morality that others have rejected in favor of this unbounded individuality and moral freedom. They speak evil of us because we're considered ignorant and bigoted. They speak evil of us because we don't support government-run schools. Um, they speak evil of us for any number of reasons. And, and I think Peter's point is when we do good, their evil speaking will get turned on their head, and everybody will look and say, That's, they're the foolish ones. Those Christians are good people. Does that make sense? That's a simple thought, right? It's not a, not a really hard thing to grasp. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and ver look at verse 13, and let's, let's see what Peter is talking about. Uh, therefore, and this is the, the beginning, therefore is a transition word, isn't it? It's a... Uh, it's a logical consequence. Because you do this, that will happen. That's the idea with therefore. So therefore, because we should live our lives in such a way that they'll see our good works and glorify God in heaven. And the very next word he uses is the word submit. It's really important for us to understand what he means by submit. So let's read this and, and try to piece apart the, the context. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So here's the context of this idea of submission. First of all, he says that submission is for the Lord's sake. It's on behalf of God that we submit. We're, we're living to God's glory. Why? Because we're God's children. 
we're living to God's glory because we're, we're his ambassadors. And, and, and so on his behalf, for the Lord's sake, we submit. Second, in verse 15, Peter points out that, by, that submitting is part of doing good. Not that submission in and of itself is good, but that genuine submission to God includes doing good with and for those you're subjected to. And then third, verse 16, Peter makes it clear that our submission is freely given out of liberty. We are, we are free because we are God's children. I mean, think about it. If you're the child of the king, who is above you? The king. No one else is above you. So you are free in Christ. And yet he invites you as a free, um, noble person nobility in God's court, right? As a free person, you are to submit yourself. And, and what did Jesus do? Didn't he do that same thing? As God himself, he subjected himself um, to people here on earth. We don't submit as slaves because we're slaves, but because we are royalty who are glorifying our father. Wives don't submit to their husbands because they're wives, but because they're the royal daughters of the king of the universe. Right? Does that make sense? And then lastly, submission is demonstrated through honor. We honor the government officials. We honor um, each other as we love each other. We honor God as we demonstrate reverence for him. So this is the, the context and the idea that Peter is suggesting here. Now, it's not terribly hard to submit to someone who's nice to you, is it? I mean boss comes up and he says, hey, could you do this thing for me? I'll give you some money for it. And you're like, oh, sure. Yeah, I can do that. Thanks for the money. Right? Uh, it's not hard to submit to somebody who's nice and, and certainly somebody who gives you nice things as a result. But is it difficult to submit to somebody who's spreading hurtful rumors about you or treating you unkindly or being, being um, hurtful to you? That's not as easy, is it? So what are we supposed to do when someone is abusing us? And that's the question Peter begins to answer in verses 18 and onwards. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if you, when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to, to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to the, him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is, this is one thought. Servants submit even when there's abuse because. Does that make sense? This whole passage is one section. And, and keep in mind the context that Peter is writing. He writes to servants and asks them to be submissive to their masters, He's writing to people who are in forced labor situations. Many people ran their own businesses. They weren't subject to a master. But these people that he's talking to are the lowest of society, and they don't have a choice. 
Could they get out from under this? No. The master in this context uh, is, is not, he's a powerful person, and he, he's, he's not one that you can get away from easily. And so Peter encourages this slave, this subject, to not do bad things and be punished for it. But if he's going to be punished, do, it, do good things. Let the master punish, do whatever he's going to do. God will hold him accountable, but you do good things. Don't return evil for evil. Now, during the same time, Christians were considered to be a sect of Judaism. Do you remember what was going on in the first century in, in uh, the Roman Empire with Jews? It's 70 AD. The Jews have an uprising. Rome comes in, and they, they level the city. Tens of thousands of people die because of just Judaism, the, the Jewish insurrection. In fact, there is a point at which the Jews had uprisings in, in Egypt and in, in Rome and all kinds of places. And at, at a certain point, Rome outlawed Judaism in certain cities. It drove all the Jews out of, out of Rome just because they were so bad at, at stirring up trouble. The Christians responded in the second and third centuries to this problem with, with um, the Romans hating the Jews, and they, they were being considered this sect of Judaism. So they responded by saying, we're not Jews. And they started celebrating and, and doing things on Sunday. And they, they um, left the Sabbath behind. Now, Peter, he's not wanting the Christians to, to reject the Sabbath. He's saying, don't be like the Jews in a different way. He's saying, don't be like the Jews in your insurrection. Be subject to the governing authorities that God has given you. In verse 19, he says, what credit is it if you're beaten for doing wrong and you take it? It's when you do good and experience suffering, that's when others will really notice. Why? Because a servant behaving well contrasted with a master behaving with malice and evil that's a huge contrast, and people will notice, and the master will even notice. You remember the, the stories during the, um, the, the Reformation time? You have people that are being burned at the stake for this uh, supposedly false religion. When people look at the, the religious leaders who are supposed to be godly, and they're with evil intent burning, literally burning these people to death— they see the person that's there at the stake, and they're, and they're saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Or they're singing a hymn. The contrast between the righteous good deeds of the person that's suffering and the person making the suffering happen, doing the abuse, was so great that Ellen White in the Great Controversy said, the blood of martyrs is seed. You plant a seed of truth. And then Peter makes the statement, for to this you were called. Are we called to suffer? Is that the point? Look back at verse 12 and you'll find out the reason and the calling that's here. Peter sets up this discussion for submission. We are called to glorify God with our actions. We're not called to suffer, but if we do suffer, we're called to respond in the same way that Jesus did. And how, did, how does he say that Jesus responded? He committed no sin. He spoke without deceit. He didn't insult when he was insulted. He, did, he didn't threaten when he was abused. Instead, this is how Jesus responded. He committed himself to the Father who judges righteously. Ultimately, who's going to be the judge? Who do all the masters in our lives respond to in the judgment? 
to God. And so when, when the final judgment happens, whatever abuse we've suffered today, God will repay. So it, what Peter is saying, don't respond to evil with evil in return. Instead, respond to evil with good. Live in a, such a way that you'll glorify your Father, which is heaven. What would our, our salvation look like if Jesus hadn't submitted? If Jesus had been like retaliating with malice and defensive accusations, what would, what would God have looked like if Jesus had responded that way? He wouldn't have looked like the God that we know today, would he? And so God invites us to respond like Jesus did. And this, this is the gospel message. Right here in 1 Peter 2, we find the gospel with the story of Jesus. Jesus, he comes and he submits himself. He submits himself to the point of death. And in the process, he suffers abuse. I know many of you have suffered abuse in your life. And, and if you look at the story of Jesus, you find that he was abandoned. He was rejected. He was isolated and hungry and homeless and beaten and ridiculed and jeered and bullied. Jesus experienced abuse. He knows what you feel. And he hurts with you. Isn't it a beautiful thing that God knows you? He understands you. He knows what your experience is like. As we move to chapter 3, we find Peter kind of... Um, moving up the ladder of submission. The very bottom rung is the servant. In the, the Roman society, um, you had a um, kind of uh, a, a ladder, you might say, where the authorities above you um, were your, at least in the home, your husband, and then the wife, and then the children, and then the servants. And so Peter begins at the very bottom rung of this ladder, and he's starting to move his way up. And now he's talking about wives. Now, husbands, they were the, the master of their domain, the ultimate authority in the home. They had the, the ability, if they wanted to, to take their child and put them outside. Like, let's say, newborn baby. They didn't want it. They could put that baby on the front porch and let it, they called it exposure, and let that baby die overnight. There were Christian groups that would go around and find these babies left on porches, and they would, they would rescue them following Jesus' command to help the orphans. Wouldn't that be an amazing ministry? But a husband had an amazing amount of authority in the home. He was over the wife. In fact, um, he could reject or divorce his wife. The wife couldn't do so much until later in the first century. Um, he had this... Uh, the ability to control the servants and do what he wanted and, and force them to do what, what he wanted them to do. He could punish them. He could punish the wife. Um, women were believed to have less intelligence and less um, ability. They were fragile. They were weak in the, the Roman mind. Children, they were subject to their mothers, but only as long as, well, if it was a boy, only as long as, as he was um, a young boy. Once he became like 12 or something like that, um, then uh, the, he was no longer subject to the woman. Uh, to the wife. And, and he was now more intelligent and more capable than his mom and became kind of the, the second to the husband. Servants, of course, were, they were the lowest. They were considered basically beasts of burden. They, could, they, they couldn't think for themselves. They had to be told what to do. And so uh, just this mindless obedience was expected. But interestingly, Peter, beginning at the bottom, he affirms something that was radical, 
He tells the servants not that they should submit to their masters and and follow their master's religion, which is what the, the culture suggested. He affirmed their ability to choose. And he said, in your choice to follow Jesus, freely, because you're free in Christ, freely choose to submit to your masters. He is, he, this is revolutionary stuff that Peter is suggesting. In fact, he is making it a point to say that, that these are subversive submission servants, right? They're submitting for a purpose. What's the purpose according to 1 Peter 2.12? So that the master will end up glorifying God, right? They've got a purpose. They're there submitting to their master so that their master will have the seed of the gospel planted in his heart. And when the Holy Spirit convicts him of his sin, that he will look in your life and say, wow, that's the true God. All who follow Christ will lead, other, will lead others. And that's whether you're a servant or a wife or, or whatever your role in, in the world is. In 1 Peter Three, Peter is moving up the ladder to women in their subject role to their husbands at that time. She wasn't allowed to choose her own religion. If her husband followed a cult, she was supposed to follow him. But Peter, again, he does not tell her, be subject to your husband, follow him, stop being a Christian. He affirms her, her choice to follow Christ and even gives her that same, that same seed, that purpose of planting a seed for God in that home. In, in uh, verse 1, it says, Wives, chapter 3, verse 1, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror." Now, this is an interesting passage, and, and I think sometimes we, we like to use this as a proof text for what we should and shouldn't wear. That's, that's often where it is in our evangelistic series. Um, look, the Bible says don't, don't wear gold. But honestly, that's not what Peter's point is. Peter's not talking about adornment. And, and then we, we get distracted. He, he does talk about adornment, but that's not his, his end goal. And then he, we also get distracted because it talks about the Sarah thing. What in the world is this Sarah? And, and then not being afraid with any terror. What does this mean? So I looked it up in the New, New Living Translation, and I, I liked how it summarized this idea. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Peter isn't, he's not focusing on jewelry. He's not saying you shouldn't wear good clothes. Clearly, Sarah wore a lot more than submission. And, and uh, the point is really not about the clothes at all. The point is that we should be submitting in a way that brings our family, our husbands in this case, to God. 
The question isn't what, what is a woman should wear or what a woman should wear, but how should a woman share the gospel with her ungodly husband? Do you see that connection? So not that it's, it's not suggesting that we wear good things. We should be careful with what we wear. But what it is saying is that you should do what is right. Don't focus on, on the, the... Don't focus on the trends and the fashions of this world. Don't spend all your time with some fancy updo. Don't, don't try to, to take all of your focus and put it on you, is what he's saying. Instead, live a life that will glorify God in your home. Put some effort into this relationship with your husband in a way that will glorify God. Sarah, she didn't do whatever Abraham told her to do. It wasn't just a blind obedience there. However, she did honor him by fearlessly doing what was right. And that, that last thing in there, I think, gives women a fantastic opportunity. He says, without fear for what your husband might do. Do what's right without fear. It might be helpful to understand what submission is by understanding what it is not in this context. Submission is not agreeing to everything. Remember, this is a woman who is choosing Christianity in a pagan home. It's not leaving your brain at the door. You're not waiting around for your husband to give you instructions of what you should do. It's not surrendering your mind to some other person. A submissive submissive person is still free, according to Peter, and their submission is as a result of the freedom they have in Christ. Submission is not letting go of any influence. Remember, they have this subversive intent. Their goal is to influence. That's what he's suggesting to them. And then it's not putting the will of your husband before Christ. The passage says, for the Lord's sake. We submit first to the Lord, and only uh, our, our submission to other people is only as it is okay in submission to God. So, for example, my, my boss, Mark, is here. If my, if my boss were to say, Mark, if you were to tell me that you need to do this uh, thing, and, it, and it's uh, dishonest in some way, then my submission to you would be best reflected by first submitting to God, who says to be honest. And so I would say no to you, and that would be a submissive action because I'm first submitting to God. Does that make sense? So we don't submit to somebody by, by ignoring God, submitting to them before Christ. We put Christ first, and our submission to the other person, the other authorities in our life, is as to the Lord. So if, if the, the husband says, uh, let's bring some bad thing into the the bedroom, it would be appropriate to say no. And it would be submissive to stand up and say no. Let's deceive someone so that we can get a particular deal. No would be a, a submissive response to that. She is compelled to disobey her husband because she is fearlessly doing what is right under God. Getting, it's also, submission is not getting spiritual strength from your husband. We are, we are God's children, each one of us, and we should all submit first to Christ. And it's not living or acting in fear. Remember, this is a fearless woman, a fearless woman who does what is right without fearing what her husband might do. So, so if that's the case, then what is submission in Peter's mind? Submission is a free choice to live a godly life, even in the face of abuse, which will first honor God. It corresponds to obedience in that it's honoring authority, but it doesn't condone an authority acting in a controlling or abusive way. And obedience is only permissible as it honors God. And there's one more section. He moves from servants, 
to, to wives, and then he moves up the ladder one more rung, and he talks to husbands. And what he says to husbands is short. It's just verse 7, but it is impressive for what he says to this culture. He says in verse 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them, with their wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Notice how he tells a Roman husband to give honor to his wife. In chapter 2, verse 12, we find that we give honor to uh, civil authorities, to, to people who are above us. And yet here, he's telling the Roman husband who is considered above his wife to honor her. That's a significant thing. He, it says uh, here, as to the weaker vessel, right? That, that's as though this person is a weaker vessel. And some people take this and say, well, see, women are weaker than men. Peter, Peter says it. But I think that the, um, the New King James, or New Living Translation, rather, again, renders this a little more accurately. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Uh, gentlemen, how many of you have ever given birth? Just raise your hand if you have. Okay. From what I understand, um, having attended two births myself, this is, there is a strength in women that men just don't have. Have you ever walked in and your wife is, is doing the dishes uh, and, and uh, you just put your hands under there to rinse them and it's like, ow, that is so hot. For some reason, uh, I, women tend to have a, a higher tolerance for, for heat than men do, and, and I could burn myself and she'd be fine. Uh, women are not weak. Have you ever tried to take care of kids for an hour, gentlemen, that your, your wife has taken care of all day and seems to be unfazed by? For me, it's like, wow, that's hard work. Women are not weak. And Peter is not suggesting they are weak here. She may be weaker, but she's your equal partner in salvation. Notice how he's flipping this on, on, the, on its head. The culture says that she's weaker than you, that she's frail, that she's ignorant. But what God says is that she's an equal partner. Peter is facing their culture, and he says, no, she's worthy of honor. In fact, he underscores this. And he, by saying that men should live with their wives in an understanding way. How many of you understand your wives, men? Come on, sure, surely one or two of you has lived long enough that you've understood your wife by now. I, I probably shouldn't wait any longer for a raised hand. It takes a lot of humble listening in order to get to a place of understanding. And for those of us who, who weren't able to raise our hand, and my hand was raised as an example, not because I actually understand my wife, just so you know. You can't seek understanding and attempt to control at the same time, can you? Understanding requires submission, and it requires honor. You, you understand somebody that you're willing to see as valuable. Peter's asking husbands to submit to their wives. He's not saying it in so many words, but that's what he's saying. Understand them, which means listening and paying attention and valuing and, and, and taking the time to put their interests above your own. He's saying honor, just like you would somebody who's higher than you. And then he says, well, I think that, that Paul's suggestion here from our, our scripture reading in Ephesians 5.17, it's important to, to notice here, and I think it's a comparison. Paul says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And what is the will of the Lord? In verse 21, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is the, the context. 
He says, live in an understanding way. He's saying, submit. Submit yourselves one to another. A team player, not a dictator. Now, I mentioned the Sabbath is the general conference's end it now emphasis day. It's the last Sabbath in August. And uh, the, the focus of this, of this time is for education and for paying attention to this subject and saying, let's stop this abusive behavior. In whatever form it, it's in our homes, let's stop it now. On September 4, that's this Wednesday, from noon to 3 o'clock here at the church, we're going to have a, uh, hopefully it'll work, we're going to show a live uh, conference from the North American Division's Summit on Abuse. And if you're interested in attending that, it'll be, um, each year they discuss a little bit different facet of the subject, and they'll have different presenters that will present over that, that period of time. And so I'd like to invite you to come and attend um, Wednesday at noon. Uh, come on over, bring a snack or something. Uh, they, they've got it on Eastern time, so, so it's over lunch for us. But uh, bring a snack and, and uh, we'll enjoy um, some education on this subject. And hopefully it will empower us as a church to respond to this situation. If you, uh, I mentioned end it now northamerica.org. So if you want to, you can actually go and register and they'll send you a link so you can participate in that seminar at home if, if it's not convenient for you to come here. I mentioned that we're not called to suffer abuse. We're called to glorify God, right? We are called to return good for evil. We're called to live for God's glory, which in today's society means that we need to stand up in the face of sin and that we need to call it by its right name. We don't live in Roman times where women are subject to their husbands and have no ability to get out from under that that subjugation. We're not in Roman times where a slave is subject to their boss and can't get out from under it. Today we have freedom. We have freedom to change our circumstance. And so if you're in, the, in a situation where your boss is, is um, doing bad things, it's okay to take them to court and to prosecute them to the full extent of the law. That is, that is a righteous thing to do and a fearless thing to do. If you're in a, in a family situation where you are um, in harm's way, it is, it is a, a good thing, a fearless thing to stand up against that sin, not to condone it, but to stand up against it and say, I'm not going to tolerate this and to find a safe place for you and your children. We don't live in those Roman times any, anymore. Peter is asking us to do what is right and the most right thing to, to do is to say no to sin, to create healthy boundaries. Peter ends his line of reasoning with this phrase, finally, in verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him return away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You might be wondering, why did he say the title of this sermon, praying to the, to the ceiling? And this is the reason. Because in verse 7, Peter addresses men husbands who are being abusive to their wives. And he says, don't do that. And then in verse 12, 11 and 12, 
um, I guess starting in verse 10, he, he says, this is what you should do. Speak in this way, act in this way. And then he says, in verse 7, he says that your prayers not be hindered. And in verse 12, he says, the face of the Lord, uh, the, and the, his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If we are living abusive lives, our prayers, God's going to leave them at our ceiling. And he, he's not going to bless us in this life or in the next. So I want to give a challenge to you. Look inside your life. Have you, been, have you been acting towards your spouse, whether you're a woman or a man? Have you been acting towards your spouse or towards your children or towards your employees in a way that is harmful to them? In a way that, that's uh, controlling or manipulative or, or hurtful? I'd ask you to, to consider this passage. Peter quotes Psalm 34 and this list of righteous attitudes. Refrain from evil speaking. Don't be gossiping about people. Don't be uh, speaking meanly about your spouse. Have you ever heard that couple where the, the guy sometimes he, he, he has digs at his wife and he says these little things that kind of snarky, kind of mean, and she laughs a little bit awkwardly. And you know that, that at home there's, there's no little about the dig. He's, he's saying mean things. Refrain from evil speaking. Refrain from deceiving people. That would include manipulation. Turn from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. This is God's call to us, that our prayers not be hindered, that his ear will be open. The, if you want to summarize this, this passage from uh, chapter 2 to chapter 3, Peter begins with this question, what should a Christian do when experiencing abuse? And he responds in this way. He says, first, live your life in such a way that God will be glorified. And second, don't return evil for evil, but give good in return for evil. And third, submit to the Lord and to other authorities out of the freedom that you have in Christ. And remember that Jesus' death and resurrection is a promise, a promise that we will have a future with peace and safety and justice. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. No one is called to endure, to, no one is called to suffer, but God does call us, if we have no choice, to endure it with goodness to God's glory. And Jesus, he suffered too. He knows our pain. An old spiritual by Andre Crouch reminds us that Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there is no other. Jesus is the way. He says, if you, if you have some questions in the corners of your mind and traces of discouragement and peace you can't find, reflections of the old past, they seem to face you every day. There's one thing I know for sure, that Jesus is the way. I know you got mountains, things uh, that you think you cannot climb. I know that your skies have been dark. You think the sun won't shine. In case you don't know, I'm here to tell you that the world of God, a word of God is true, and everything that he's promised, I tell you that he will do it for you. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way.